welcome to this edition of Spotlight. I'll be your host, Rogan. If this is your first time checking out Spotlight, this is an offshoot of the Prog Notes podcast, where we chat with some incredible artists and musicians in the progressive rock scene. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you to all of the Prog Notes patrons for helping these episodes happen. Check out what the benefits are of becoming a patron at patreon.com slash prognotes. Today we have Tim Boness on to discuss his new solo album, and the second one this year, I might add, uh, Butterfly Mind. It's so great having you on, Tim. Uh, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, hi, yeah, well, I'm Tim Boness. Uh, I suppose my best-known project is No Man with Stephen Wilson, who a few of your listeners will know, and I also host a podcast with him called The Album Years. Um, and... Butterfly Mind is my seventh solo album. Actually, it's not my second album this year. The album you're referring to uh, with Giancarlo Era, we actually recorded that in 2010. Oh, so that was a reissue via oh, Telescope. So yeah, I, I'm not that prolific. But <laughs> so, yeah, this is my, my first solo album in two years. So getting right into it, what is the title Butterfly Mind supposed to evoke? Like, does it tie into a theme that you are trying to express throughout the album? I think it's sort of it's tying in more with the nature of the music and maybe uh, myself really. It's something that um, as a person I've often been referred to, especially creatively, as having this butterfly mind, which means I can flip from one idea to another very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, this is something that has been said about me from, from parents to my partner onwards. and. Um, I guess it was a term that I used in the album and I felt it was quite appropriate for this album because it's quite an eclectic album musically. It moves through a variety of moods and has a kind of genre crossing and generational crossing guest list. Whereas there is actually a theme, I think, on the album. Weirdly enough, the theme isn't necessarily that. So whereas Butterfly Mind, I think, might describe a particular mindset because I never particularly want to repeat myself. So this album is very different from my previous solo album, Late Night Laments, which was a very atmospheric album, which in turn was incredibly different from the album I made with Stephen Wilson as No Man, Love You to Bits, which was a kind of disco electronic symphony. Um, so, you know, I've always got this feeling that I that I have to surprise myself and find myself somewhere new. I mean, I'll always be drawn to melancholy ballads, so that aspect of my work is, is, a, is a given and a permanent, but I think generally speaking, my music moves quite radically in some ways and um the theme of the album in a sense was was against oblivion a lot of the lyrics are about people attempting to outlive our human states that you know we have this very kind of short almost meaningless time on earth and so a lot of the characters in the songs whether it's through music and art or through relationships or politics, they're trying to do something that goes beyond their small human lives. It's almost this against oblivion, this kind of canute against the waves. Mm. Yeah, I did notice like that very eclectic mix of stuff, like even within like one track, like uh, like the, the first one, I, I'm blanking on the name right now, but the intro track, you like end with that very percussive sort of acapella uh, uh, thing towards yeah. the end that is like something that's very different to, to close off that that intro track. Well, that was kind of it's, it's interesting because one podcast I do like is is the Rick Beato music co mm -hmm. podcast. If you know his work, and 
He continually analyzes music of today and music of 10 years ago and 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And it, it's, it's a fact that in general, commercial music has become simplified. You know, it's, it's using a similar two, three, four chord trick. It's working within almost identical regimented BPMs and so on. And I think when I was writing Say Your Goodbyes Part 1 and Say Your Goodbyes Part 2, which opened and closed the album, I was thinking of this Beato um, idea that music was so rigid. And so it's actually in three very different tempos. The first track, which is only two minutes long, is in three very different tempos. Um, and even in different keys and so, so it, it is almost deliberately shifting as you say uh, it has maybe three or four sections that make emotional sense but don't necessarily make logical musical sense for sure um, so now you are a quite the busy person between several music projects a record label and a podcast uh, how do you find like the motivation to put out a solo album or two almost like every year? Well, in terms of solo albums, I think um, I've made six since 2014 and generally it's been on a kind of one every two years. And with the last two albums, what has been very different about them is that with my previous albums, and this includes even the No Man album, Love You To Bits, we had the seed of something that we'd already written. So Stephen and I had this track that we'd written in 1994, never felt we'd done it justice. We tried through the years to make it better. We got together in 2019, finally cracked it, and we wrote new material for it, we developed it, and so on. And with a lot of my albums, generally speaking, they've had sort of 60, 70% new material, and 30, 40% material that's almost been retrofitted to the project, songs that were never completed to my satisfaction. But what's been interesting with Late Night Laments and Butterfly Mind is that I've had nine months where I've not written a thing. I've just waited for inspiration because I don't believe in kind of putting things out there for the sake of it. I think you've got to believe passionately in what you do or, or feel it, that there's a thread of inspiration through it. And so with Late Night Laments and with Butterfly Mind, both of those albums, were written after nine months of me just absorbing things, just absorbing music, absorbing life. And obviously we've been through lockdowns in Britain, the pandemic, Brexit, there's been an awful lot politically as well. And there's this sense of just in a, in a way, waiting for the inspiration to hit. And so with um, both of these albums, all of the material has been written during the sessions. And so Butterfly Mind started in October 2020, and that was after nine months of me writing nothing, really. And once I'd started, I couldn't stop. You know, five songs were written in the first month or two, and then there's a passion, and then you're following the threads of this passion. And I guess if there was one overriding idea for this album, it was that I wanted to surprise myself, and I wanted to surprise the listeners that you know, this was one of those albums where I was facing things head on and I was, you know, in a sense, wanting to be carried along. So it's, it's kind of less controlled, more eclectic than certainly Late Night Lament. Mm -hmm. So I had only really listened to like Memories of Machines and like a little bit of Love You to Bits before this. Uh, but I remember like, like memories of machines especially sounding like very cinematic and score-like 
Uh, but then like listening through Butterfly Mind gives me more sort of like jazzy, almost crooner vibes as well as like some heavier mm. funk at times. Like, was there a shift in the style you were going for for this album and what influenced some of these changes? Well, I mean, as I say, the only um, difference in a way was that I was wanting to surprise myself with some material. I was, you know, I was kind of opening myself to it because I write in a very instinctive way. And there is always a cinematic aspect, always a melancholy aspect, even on something like Love You To Bits, which is a kind of a pummeling electronic piece. It's quite cinematic in terms of its arrangements. And I guess the main differences with this were that the collaborators perhaps made uh, more of an impact. I mean, I worked with a lot of people on this album, from Ian Anderson, Jess Tull, Richard Jupp of Elbow, the great bass player, Nick Beggs, Peter Hamill of Van Graaff Generator. And so it was a kind of cross-generational um, group of musicians. There's a singer on this called Martha Goddard, who's in an up-and-coming Liverpool indie band. We've got um, a New York R&B singer appears on three of the tracks. And so it's a really diverse mixture of musicians as well as musical styles. And all of these things I, I'm drawn to. And um, there was a post-punk legend on this, a guy called Dave Formula, who is in a band called Magazine and a band called Visage. And he plays a lot of the Hammond organ and synths. And so when albums suggest guest players, I bring in the people I think would suit the pieces. And I usually give them a couple of instructions. So it's this idea of, right, this is what I want for the piece. Secondly, give me what you think the piece wants. And generally, I kind of use a combination of both of those things. And so there's some amazing soloing from people like Ian Anderson and Dave Formula. And also on this album, I used a rhythm section throughout. So on Late Night Laments, it was much more electronic. And rather than real drums, I went with real vibraphones. So it had an even jazzier texture. Um, and, you know, maybe a bit like the Peanuts cartoons from the 60s or something, but I was using that lovely jazz vibraphone approach. Whereas on this album, it's got a very um, gritty rhythm section of Nick Beggs, who's worked with everyone from Steve Wilson to Kajagoogoo to Steve Hackett to Howard Jones um, and Richard Jupp. And Richard Jupp's in a band, well, was in a band called Elbow until very recently. And I always adored his uh, drumming in Elbow and felt he was very underrated. So that's one difference where you've got a singular rhythm section on almost all of the tracks. And then you've got these guest soloists. So as I said, these guest soloists could be anyone from Ian Anderson to Dave Formula to a great Italian jazz musician, uh, Nicola Alessini. So it, it's very varied in terms of the players. And I suppose that they've influenced uh, the sound of it and the nature of it yeah you touched a little bit on uh like deciding who would sort of fit where uh but like what can you expand on that a little bit like how did you determine like which tracks could use some of these like specific musicians performances and like and how did you like reach out to them and and determine who to reach out to well Dave Formula, it was a case we were doing a track called Only a Fool and it had this really distorted synth line and I, it reminded me of Dave Formula's work with Magazine. And I think it required a real pianist to bring out the chorus. And so I knew that 
um, Dave was, was actually a great all-round keyboard player. So initially, it was just this trigger that a synth sound reminded me of the work of his that I loved. So I um, contacted him and luckily he really liked the material and he ended up on four of the tracks. And I'd remembered that he was a brilliant Hammond organ player. But weirdly enough, although his fame was in the 1970s and 1980s, he'd actually started out in bands in Manchester in the 1960s and had been a Hammond organ player. So he was delighted to actually get out his real Hammond and play on the album. Um, Ian Anderson I've worked with in the past, and um, it was one track which didn't make the album actually, but a track called Clearing Houses, which has a very nostalgic feel. And I immediately could hear Ian Anderson playing Tin Whistle on the track. Now, Ian has only, hasn't played Tin Whistle on anything for years. Yes. And I think he was quite surprised to be asked to play Tin Whistle on a piece. So I got him to play Tin Whistle and Flute on one piece, which I love. It's one of my favourite pieces that we did from the sessions, but it just didn't fit the overall album once it was completed. And then I thought I wanted to give him something very different. There was always this running joke that Jethro Tull had won a Grammy, a heavy metal Grammy, and took it away from Metallica. So the heaviest track on the album, We Feel, I thought it would be hilarious if I had a really distorted Ian Anderson flute solo on it, where Ian really is heavy metal. And um, he readily agreed and was brilliant. Um, and another case of that was, um, I there's one track on the album, Dark Nevada Dream, that reminded me a little of early No Man, the No Man material that we released in the early 1990s. And we had a brilliant violinist on it called Ben Coleman and I've not worked with Ben Coleman for 30 years in the studio so I said Ben do you fancy working on some material and luckily he came on board and sounded just as good as he did 30 years ago awesome yeah so what was it like working with some of these like sort of uh first and second generation like Prague artists like Ian Anderson you have Peter Hamill you, you touched on that you've like worked with Ian before uh but how about like Peter Hamill like what was it it, it like sort of uh reaching out and working with him and and figuring out exactly well, Peter, what I've known him for a good many years so, so so with No Man we we were lucky you know when we were first signed in the early 1990s we managed to work with a lot of musicians that we'd grown up with and adored so Robert Fripp played with us Mel Collins played with us Jansen Barbieri and Khan from Japan played with us and that led to Richard Barbieri making an album with me and joining Porcupine Tree. So we were very lucky to work with a lot of people we'd idolised when we were younger. A great jazz musician in Britain, uh, Ian Carr, who was like the British Miles Davis. We had him on a couple of our No Man albums. So I've been very lucky through the years to work with a number of people whose music I grew up with. and. Um, Peter, I've kind of known for about 20 years because we were always appearing on the same albums in Italy that we'd be guest stars on Italian albums and it would always be him singing and me singing and for whatever reason in Italy we were almost like being asked by the same people. And one of them actually appears on my album, Saro Cosentino. He's a famous producer in Italy. And yet again, he's doing a new album and the two English singers on it are myself and Peter Hamill. And um, we did a lot of work on that album. So Peter's worked with me for the last 11, 12 years on albums. And um, we now live very near one another. He's actually, his house is pretty much just round the corner behind mine. So <laughs> I kind of, you know, luckily 
he's one of my coffee and a chat friends as well. And, and that is fantastic because, as I say, I, he was one of my um, heroes growing up as a singer. You know, I, I adored his integrity and in his music. So it was great to realise that he was as nice a man as his music was imaginative. Nice. And yeah, touching on your your like singing style and influences, uh, what would you say is the origin of your like very whispery vocal style? Like, are there any particular artists that you can like pinpoint being the inspiration, or is it like a vocal quality you just sort of fell into naturally? I, I suppose it's a, it's a quality that's kind of uh, evolved. I mean, it's probably less whispery than people realize, and especially if they see me in a live context. And there's going to be a No Man box set released next year. And especially when you hear the No Man live, even the No Man acoustic live, I can have a very, you know, not the heavy metal death <laughs> growl, but I've got a pretty uh, loud voice and I'm capable of quite big singing. So I think what it was, the, the big shift was really with some of the No Man material that was quieter. It was me responding to the music. When I started singing in the 80s, my heroes were anyone from Peter Hamill to Peter Gable to David Bowie to Scott Walker um, to even soul singers like, you know, um, Marvin Gaye. But I probably imposed myself on the music. You know, when you're younger, you tend to, in a sense, perhaps be, you know, have those energetic outbursts. So I think that in the 1990s, I really just learn to respond to the music rather than pummel the music with my voice. Um, but again, as I said, if you hear hear me in a live context, you'll, you'll hear it slightly differently because again, live, it demands a different approach sometimes. You're responding to the audience. Yeah, the energy is a lot different. Exactly. Um, so it's that really, I think that it was just, it was a certain point when I think probably sometime in the early 1990s, it was me getting into the mindset of the music, just giving what I felt the music required, rather than kind of egotistically forcing my voice on it. Though, you know, I do um, enjoy singing out as well. And, um, and then there are aspects of that in, in some of what I do in, in the present. Mm-hmm. So we touched a, a little bit on uh, the podcast you do with Stephen Wilson, the album years. Uh, so, but speaking of that, how did that like idea initially arise, and like what are some of the sentiments behind the show? Well, the idea started where, um, really the first day of lockdown in the UK, and and it was a pretty significant day for me because I just finished um, the recording of Late Night's Laments. And a lot of my feelings towards lockdown and the virus in some ways were in that album because I was very well aware of what was happening in Wuhan from the very beginning. I'd seen those early two-line articles become half-page articles, become page-long articles, become the entire newspaper. And there was a real sense of foreboding about that year, which I think influenced Late Night Laments, the album. Um, and I'd finished the recording of the album at that point. I think I'd finished the writing in January, but I finished the recording in March. And Stephen phoned me up and said, right, I've got to postpone the release of my album. I can't release it in this climate. I've postponed the tour, I've postponed the album. Do you fancy doing a podcast? And so I was just out walking, you know, in Britain at that point, it was the very first day of lockdown and we were allowed an hour walking that was it out of our houses. 
And so I spent my hour talking to Stephen on the phone about what we'd be doing with this podcast. And I think both of us decided that we wanted to give back to music what music had given to us. We wanted to, in some ways, express our enthusiasm for the eclectic music taste that we had, for the artists that had inspired us, for the artists that had interested us. And so that was the, the initial idea. Stephen had phoned me up, asked me if I wanted to do it. And then a couple of days later, I came up with the title The Album Years and thought, why don't we pick one year and then concentrate on all that year can give? Because one of the great things, you know, meeting Stephen was that he was the first musician I'd worked with who, like me, had extraordinarily eclectic taste. You know, we would listen to jazz, classical, progressive rock, hard rock, soul music, folk music, Elizabethan music. For us, it was what interested us, you know, Brazilian folk music. And so no idea was out of bounds. Of course, we're limited by our abilities, we're limited by our emotional preferences, but no idea was out of bounds. You know, if we were doing a no man's session in 1987, we could talk about cutting edge industrial funk bands like Slab. We could talk about Judas Priest. We could talk about Gentle Giant. We could talk about Stockhausen. And we both know what we were talking about. Whereas I'd previously been in a band whose music I loved, a band called Plenty with Brian Hulse. And Brian Hulse is still working with me. And I really respect Brian and I really love the music I work with Brian. But Brian, like quite a number of musicians I'd worked with and Stephen had worked with, had much more of an idea of what he wanted to do, of what he liked, and it wouldn't go beyond that. And many of the influences he'd regard as indulgent or awful or wouldn't want to discuss it, whereas the thing with Stephen and I is we can, well, actually, this, you know, we might do an avant-garde jazz piece and say, but this piece could do with a little bit of a free rhythm section style, you know, and we'd know exactly what we're talking about because I guess we, we did in the classic title of George Michael, Listen Without Prejudice, because you can find great music everywhere. And you can find terrible music everywhere as well. Yeah, I know like in discussions about like full albums too, that that's very like, it's changed so drastically over the last like maybe two decades with like streaming and stuff and a whole bunch of singles and, and whatever. Like there, there's been a lot of of chatting in our discord server about like uh is the album dead is like people who enjoy listening through an entire work versus like people who enjoy listening to just the singles and jumping around from track to track and, and stuff so it's an interesting viewpoint that way as well to like come at that podcast from like a f like you're picking a full album and like what is the experience all the way through yeah, well, we still think, you know, of course I love singles. And when we first got into music, you know, it was all I could afford. Same with Stephen. So we're buying a lot of singles. And, and the 70s and 80s were great singles decades, some very inventive work. But I think I've always loved the journey that an album represents. You know, for me, if the single, a great single is a great short story, a great album is a great novel. And I love burying myself in novels. And you know, one of the first bands I loved was Pink Floyd. And I remember buying, when I was a kid, Wish You Were Here, and falling in love not only with the music, which was so atmospheric and all enveloping, but it was the package that informed the music, gave greater meaning to it. And when I make albums, 
I still think in terms of albums. You know, I, I sometimes take a month or more over the album structure because it's very important. Also, all of my albums have been 38 to 43 minutes long. It's the classic album from 60s, 70s, 80s because I think that that is good for my music, the intensity of my music, and it's good for the concentration span of a human being as well. I think that the CD was where the album initially suffered because I love the CD as a format and I love the CD in terms of its audio quality, but people wanted to fill 80 minutes. And yeah. so from the late 80s onwards, you had lots of albums where there was a brilliant 35 or 40 minute album lost in an 80 minute disc because people were filling it for the sake of it. And that's one of the things that Stephen and I were pretty good at that in the early days of No Man, where we were told, you've got to fill that space. And I'm thinking, why? You've got to make the best record as far as we were concerned. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's people who have like done that perfectly, like made a, a full sort of like almost 80 minute album. And like, but you, the, it's a very special case where you have to like keep the energy up all the way through and like have like your ebbs yeah. and flows and stuff and, and like keep the experience up. You can't just be like, we're going to put some filler in there. Yeah. Well, also the concentration for 80 minutes as well. It's like for me, although I do like the occasional three hour film, I'm still a fan of the classic one and a half minute, sorry, not one and a half minute film, sorry, one and a half hour film. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I do think there's, there's optimum concentration at times as well. And yeah, CD can work beautifully, especially I find for electronic albums or ambient albums where it really is an 80 minute mood piece that needs to expand in that space. For sure. All right, so uh, that's all the questions I have for you, but we have one more from uh, our VIP uh, Discord channel. That's uh, where our, our patrons have, have their own sort of chat room. Um, and so we have a question from Almond Hammer, who is also one of the moderators, uh, but he asks, what albums have been the inspiration behind No Man uh, and that he's been wanting to branch into electronic, but he doesn't know where to start? I think it's very, very difficult to say. I think, you know, one thing both Stephen and I liked when we first started off was electronic music and sort of expansive atmospheric conceptual music. So both of us really liked Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here, Dark Side of the Moon, these atmospheric concept albums. But we were both very drawn to some of the contemporary dance music of that time, like Donna Summer with Giorgio Moroder or uh, Sparks with Giorgio Moroder or Chic. So there was an element of combining groove with atmosphere that both of us liked when we first started listening to music. And another influence we had when we first started off, which both of us had without knowing one another, was the film composer, John Barry. And John Barry wrote a lot of the James Bond soundtracks in the 60s and 70s. And he also wrote um, a lot of other very famous soundtracks well into the 1990s. And he had a particularly um, brilliant attention to detail in his orchestration and sense of mood. So I guess it was a weird combination of soundtrack music, 
disco electronic music and then also that kind of conceptual atmospheric music that the likes of Pink Floyd released. And, you know, through the years, our tastes then expand to include many other things. But, you know, that's that's a starting point. But yeah, if it, there's all sorts of interesting um, electronic music out there. And obviously, you can never go wrong by investigating the entire output of Brian Eno. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's a good place to start. <laughs> Is is full discography of somebody? Uh, yeah, just go to go. There's only about three hundred albums. He'll be all right. <laughs> yes, just put a, just a few afternoons for a couple weeks, and and there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic chatting with you, Tim. Uh, and hopefully, we can see you again soon on your next release. That would be great. I'm looking forward to everybody hearing this album come out in August. Thank you. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Spotlight. If you enjoyed the episode or learned something new, please subscribe. If you'd like to hear more interviews and get more prog rock content, you can become a special Prog Notes patron at patreon.com slash prognotes. Join that if you want to ask some of your favorite artists' questions to be featured in the episode. Also, come join our Discord community to chat with like-minded folk and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a new prog cover song out, so check that out on our YouTube, along with everything else through the link in the episode description. Join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of prog rock. The next Spotlight will be up on August 16th as we continue our weekly release schedule, and Destin and Drew will be back with another episode on the Prog Notes feed on August 15th. See you on Discord. Thanks. Thanks.